0: Well, today we celebrate, uh, in the church, All Saints Day. And historically, in the church, All Saints Day was, it was a day to commemorate, or an All Saints Day, I should say, was a day to commemorate those who had given their lives in service to the church, the martyrs of the church. And so, in the early church, as persecution of early Christians grew... Sadly, the number of martyrs that there were, those who had given their lives in service to the church, increased to a point where they finally said, we're just going to make one day. Rather than each having their own day, we're going to make one day on which to celebrate the sacrifice that these martyrs had given. And so that became All Saints Day. Now today in the Presbyterian church, rather than elevate a group of people as saints to revere, we celebrate what God has done through the body of Christ, through all of those believers who have come before us. And it's a day in which we marvel at the restorative work that God has done and is doing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a God who makes the impossible possible, a God who brings the dead to life. And it's a time for us to grieve together as we remember family members and friends who have passed on. But we do not grieve as people without hope, but as people who expect to see and experience the glory of God. And so at the next service, at the 11 a.m. service, we'll actually read all of the names of those in our family of faith who have passed away, deceased in this past year. And as Patrick and I prepared for this week, we we were reading through this list of names. And I was transported back to these different times and places through this last year. I had the, the honor and privilege to be a part of a number of the memorial services for those people Names who will read. And, and, and I was transported back into to living rooms. To around dining room tables. Into places where, where I had heard families talk about their loved ones. Where I heard them celebrate a life well lived. And it's at times like these. It's at funerals. It's at times when we're confronted with our own mortality that we begin to think about what does that mean? What is a life well lived? And I believe that our scripture this morning is instructive in answering that question. In answering the question, why is it that we even come here into this place, to this church? Why have you chosen on this day to get up and get showered and get dressed and maybe get kids out of bed and Sometimes kicking and screaming, and got them into a car, and you came into this place. Why is it that we do that? Our scripture this morning is instructive, and it comes from today's Old Testament selection in the Revised Common Lectionary out of the book of Deuteronomy. But there are a couple of things that I think we need to understand, and and, and one thing I want to discuss just before we jump in about this book of Deuteronomy. This book that I, I don't know that we spend enough time in, frankly. In the third grade, I was in Miss Maltimore's class. And on this particular day in Mrs. Maltimore's third grade class, Karen and Jesse and I were having a good old time. Now, I maintain my complete innocence. (laughs) However, uh, apparently, Mrs. Maltimore had asked us to keep it down more than once. And ultimately, due to my persistence, uh, I was given a note home. Mm. Now, the, one of the significant things to understand about the note home in third grade was was that it had to be signed and returned. so It could not simply find its way into the trash can. It had to be signed by one of my parents and returned. I was horrified Um, and now now why is that Uh, you know I should have been able to say you would think right big deal Uh, on the surface it's just simply a a piece of paper that said I've been talking what is the big deal with that but the significance of the note is that it represented the teacher it represented this person of authority and influence and I cared what she thought Moreover, my parents cared what she thought as well. The note carried weight because of the sender, because of who wrote it. As I prepared for this sermon and thought back to that experience, I still get a little queasy that <laughs> bus ride home that afternoon. This book of Deuteronomy that we're going to read about this morning or read from this morning is, um, it carries weight. Because it was attributed to a person of influence. The Hebrew people believed that it was written down by Moses. Moses, the one who God had given authority. Moses, the one who God had sent into Egypt to free them from slavery. These words came with authority, they had weight because they were written by a person with influence. And so hold that in your minds as we read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now this is the commandment that the statutes and the ordinances, that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and to occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life. And keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a second... That I think is helpful in understanding So first that, that these words carried weight That they came with authority Because who they would come from And who they were attributed to But let me ask you this Have you ever entered into a contract With someone A contract An agreement An agreement That there will be some sort of exchange You agree to do this And someone else will agree to do that Perhaps it's been official. Perhaps you've signed your name. But I would contend that every time you walk into a 7-Eleven, you are entering into a contract. There is this understanding between you and the storekeeper that if you want the goods on the shelves, that you will give them whatever amount of money it says on that little sticker. Right? Right? We have this understanding that's ingrained into us because of our cultural context. We understand what the rules are, what we're working within. There is this unspoken contract that if you give them this, they will give you a blue frost Gatorade. Now, during this period in history in which the book of Deuteronomy was likely written, contracts also existed. In different forms, but in particular, there were these contracts or these treaties called suzerain treaties. Now, this is really important for us to understand because these contracts were agreements between an important ruling power called a suzerain, hence the name, and a people or persons or a person. And so you would enter into this contract with this ruling power And if you gave them your allegiance, if you did the things that that they wanted you to agree to, then they agreed to provide. They would provide safety for you and your family. They would provide a means of work. They would provide food. They would provide a way for you to prosper. And, And in fact, we can see examples of these archaeologists have found remains of these suzerain treaties. And what we see is language very similar to what we find in this book of Deuteronomy, this same language, this that we 're going to give our allegiance to this person, and if we don't, these are the consequences. But if we do, here is what will happen. Here verse three again. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you. And so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. In other words, if you confess that this Yahweh, this God, is your Lord, then it's going to go well with you. You will multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. You will prosper this is the cultural context of the time as the people, the Hebrew people were reading these words. This is the way they would have understood it, as to entering into a contractual agreement. But it's also practical in this agreement. You, you see, these, these people were, were coming out of the land of Egypt, a place where there were multiple gods that were being worshipped. And they were moving into the land of Canaan that also had multiple gods. There was Baal. There was Maratuk, there was Azura, there were these other gods that people were giving their allegiance to, and and this God is Yahweh saying, no, 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 I will be the one God. And so they enter into this agreement declaring Yahweh is Lord, understanding that they will be protected, that they will prosper, they will be provided for. So what do we do with this Today? How do we read this now, thousands of years later, in a land more than 6,000 miles away in a different language? How do we read these words? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Can you say that the Lord is your God? Can you say that this Yahweh, that this Lord is your only God? Uh, About a month and a half ago, I was at a uh, Christian uh, business person's lunch, and and, uh, the the, the keynote speaker that day made this beautiful point. He said, uh, Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? He asked this question, Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? He said, I believe that we are very comfortable with the notion of Jesus as Savior, but we get uncomfortable in thinking about Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Savior makes us warm and fuzzy. Right? This sort of friend Jesus, the saving Jesus. I think of those t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. We like that version of Jesus. It's the Jesus as Lord that I believe is a stumbling block for us. But it's not except Jesus as Savior and if Lord on the days that you really feel like it, right? We're called to acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior. So how do we know or who or what is our Lord? How is that demonstrated? Because surely it's more than just a, a verbal assent, Right? This is the God of the universe. God who will not be tricked by us saying, Yeah, Jesus is Lord. So, how do we know? Some of you have heard me ask this question before, or make this statement before. You know, if, if it were illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I want to push that a step further this morning and ask the question, What is evidenced by the way that you allocate your resources? by the way you allocate your resources. When we look at the way you spend your time, when you examine the way you spend your time, what is your God? What is your Lord? When you look at the way that that you have chosen to use, your talents, your abilities, those gifts that God has given you, those things that you do naturally well because of how God shaped and molded you, what is your God? Who is your Lord? Because, like these people of Israel, these Hebrew people moving into this land of Canaan where there are multiple gods, we li- live in a world with multiple gods. They have different names, we don't call them Baal or Maratuk, right? But there are other things to which we give our allegiance. What is your God? Is it work or a pursuit of pleasure? Pursuit of fame? Is it your family? Right? That's a hard one to think about. We say family is good, but, but can that become our God? And if so, do we put it in a place where it doesn't belong? Right? When it takes that place, Is it, is it a substance? Is there, is there something that you are a slave to? Right? That, that is controlling your decisions? That's controlling the way that you manage your time and resources? The final resource that, that, that I'd like you to examine is the cliche one, and it's the most uncomfortable one, I think, for us to talk about. And We've been talking about it for the last three weeks, and that's our financial resources. I'm in a small group, and one of our uh, group members this last week said, Nick, we've been talking about stewardship for the last three weeks. When does it stop? <laughs> and I, I really appreciated the question because it's honest, right? Yeah, we, we do get uncomfortable talking about money and, and, uh, and it's fascinating, right? Because as a family of faith, we ought to be able to talk about the hard things. But I believe that one of the reasons it is so hard because it is an area that is so difficult. It is an area that has the power to ensnare us, to enslave us. We set up our barriers to it. But if we are the church, then we need to talk about these things that, that feed into our discipleship. And, and that's what stewardship is, a matter of discipleship. And so I'm going to throw off this idea that you need to give your money to the church. Nope, you just need to give it away. I, at the end of the day, frankly, I, I'm not concerned with whether you give it here or not. That's the truth. It's about giving it away. It's about not holding on to it. Now, if you have joined this church, if you are a member here, then you have also planted your flag in the sand and said, I want to go where this church is going. And then that becomes a conversation of you have sort of married yourself into this family and so you need to pool your resources, right, with this family. That makes sense. But maybe you give elsewhere too. That's great. We're called to give it away because otherwise it can become our Lord. So what is demonstrated to be your God? Who or what has your allegiance? Because at the end of the day, there is only one God that has the power to save. Some of you know that I like to cook. uh, I like to garden. And so I... I tend to sort of embarrassingly think of myself as some kind of an urban farmer, and uh, so uh, so recently I was reading a, a book about raising Berkshire pigs, like you do, <laughs> right? And as uh, serious. I was, and and uh, and so it was this this organic farm that was trying kind of looking at how to, how to raise this uh, this really valued uh, pork. And uh, they were doing everything right. They were feeding them a good diet. The pigs were healthy. But for some reason, when they were coming back from the processing plant, they showed these red streaks in them. And the meat was, was tougher and drier than it was supposed to be. It didn't have the rich flavor that Berkshire pork is supposed to promise. And what they saw is that these pigs were, were going under undue stress on their trip to the processing plant. And so they had an idea. They, they, they took pictures of the farm and they actually hung them inside the truck. <laughs> right? They put feed inside the truck and, and, and rather than going solo, they began sand, sending these pigs in pairs in these trucks. And only one of the pig would get out and then the other one would come back. And now being calm being used to the trip, this pig would serve as a companion for all pigs to the processing plant. <laughs> the results were fabulous. <laughs> Taste returned, the red streaking went away, and they were getting the product that they wanted. Now, this morning, do not press this metaphor too far. <laughs> because I'm not calling any of us pigs. What I am saying is that we live in a world that values and worships other gods. It is the cultural context in which we live. And if we compare ourselves and the way that we allocate our resources and time, our financial resources to the way that others do it, we will be fooled into complacency. We do not get to compare ourselves to our companions out there. If we do, we begin to believe a lie. Right? And so we come to church. We come to this place, and I believe the clue why is here in verses 6 through 9. Hear these words again. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise bind them as a sign, fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on your doorposts. Instructing the people of Israel that look, in order to do this well, in order to be sure that the Lord your God is one, that he is your God, it is going to be a daily process of reminding yourself who is at the top. And so we come here into this place. And and we have identified these four ways that we're going to do this in worship and study, in service and fellowship. And I'll speak for myself here this morning to say that, that I need worship as a weekly reminder of who my worship belongs to. The one true God. I need to study in order to understand who this God is, this God who promises to care for me. I need service to understand who God created me to be, that I have a purpose in God's plan. And I need fellowship. I need Christians, Christian brothers and sisters who are going to remind me that what is out there is not necessarily truth. I need Christian brothers and sisters who are going to nudge me out of complacency, who are going to tell me Jesus is Savior and Lord. One of the ways that they would bind a contract in those days is, is at the end, once both parties had come to an agreement, an understanding of what the contract said is they would eat a meal together. They would sit down and break bread. And so this morning, in just a moment, we're going to do the same thing and it's an opportunity to remember the covenant that we have entered into with Jesus Christ. This covenant that we've entered into like the people of Israel who are walking in a land of other gods the people of Israel who were rescued out and away from other gods for freedom. That we too, though we walk in a land of other gods, are called to worship the one who can set us free. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, as we enter into this next time of worship together as we enter and come around this table. God, help us to understand the covenant that we are entering into, that you call us into, a covenant which will set us free in Christ's name. Amen.